the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I'm on. I'm Dr. Bill, your radio MD, and I'm not being untrue. I'm true to you. I'm here for you today, and I'm bringing you a great show. Joe says I sound chipper and perky, <laughs> and I feel that way. He's right. I'm, you are, sir. I'm all chipped up and perked up. So we got a good show for you today. We're going to talk about the coronavirus a little bit more because it's uh, becoming an international issue before it was a pretty much a China issue with a few outbreaks here and there, but not a whole lot of activity. And now it seems to be spreading. We've got cruise ships going down. And uh, by the way, we got a call from Hilton Grand Vacation Clubs, the cruise uh, arm of the Hilton Grand Vacation Clubs. We bought a timeshare a couple of decades ago, back when we had cash. And uh, I got to tell you, it's probably not the best investment I ever made, but it has had some some uh, positives to it and some upside, and we have been on cruises where we got upgrades because we went through the Hilton Grand Vacation Club and used some of our points. And I'm not I'm not sure that I've saved a whole lot of money, but it's made uh, some of the aspects of booking and uh, getting preferential treatment in in some ways a little easier going through the Hilton Grad Vacation Club. Not that this is an advertisement for that, but at any rate, we get a call from them, and we had booked a cruise uh, leaving from Hong Kong, going to Shanghai, and then doing the Japanese islands uh, in June, this coming June, what, four or five months away. And so all of the cruises to the Orient have been canceled. Uh, and so the cruise agent called us and said, you know, we can find something else for you or refund your money and your points and so on and so forth. So we're debating whether or not we want to go somewhere else in the world other than the Orient. I asked about Australia and New Zealand, but uh, he was reticent to book anything because he said, we don't know how quickly and if the coronavirus is going to spread uh, to Australia and New Zealand. You know, they're relatively close. Uh, with a lot of, relatively, I say, but the, with with a lot of, of, of hybridization between China and uh, Southeast Asia and Australia. There are a lot of uh, Australian, Chinese Australians that, that live in and work in and are citizens of Australia, and they have family in China and in Vietnam, and they go back and forth. And there's also a lot of business activity between the Chinese and the Australians. By the way, you may not have known this, Ken, but my son, one of his roommates and one of his classmates at his graduate program in in uh, the Brand Center at Virginia Commonwealth is from Australia, and he is of Chinese extraction, and his parents came from Vietnam. A lot of Chinese escaped to Vietnam over the centuries, 
and kept their ethnic background, so to speak, and then they emigrated to Australia. So he has an Australian roommate who has ethnic Chinese origins and Vietnamese origins and speaks some Vietnamese, I would guess. So there's a lot of cross-hybridization, and as this virus spreads, uh, the most likely place for it to spread to is going to be those countries that have the most interaction with China. Well, <clears throat> what's all this mean? The number of, of cases are going up, and the number of deaths are going up. The death rate is about 2 to 3% of those who are, that we know of, infected, uh, who are clinically symptomatic with the disease. We know there are people who are testing positive for the coronavirus who have no symptoms. So this is not a disease that if you con contract it, you're going to get sick. If you come in contact with it, you're going to come down with the illness. That's not necessarily so. There are certainly lots of coronavirus outbreaks over the eons, and that basically it's a cold virus. And uh, most of us have been exposed to the coronavirus, or not necessarily this strain, but some strain or another of the coronavirus, and we don't know what the cross-reactivity is yet. We're still trying to figure that out. But you may come in contact with the virus and not have any symptoms whatsoever. There's two problems. One is if you have something that is so easily spread as the cold virus, and it's hard to stop the spread of this because, you know, somebody sneezes, as I've said before, and five minutes later you walk through their mist and they're not even in the store anymore and you've got coronavirus because the micro droplets are still in the air. And so <clears throat> this is something that's going to spread worldwide. Uh, how rapidly and uh, how virulent it will be remains to be seen. We're still looking at this and studying it. Certainly, it seems to be more virulent uh, than the SARS virus, which was a big deal back in 2003, 4, 4, 5 era. But that kind of petered out. And then we had the big deal over the uh, Ebola virus, which was going to kill all of humanity and, as I said, baloney. And I don't think anybody in the United States died from that because we have a well-developed health care system and we can take care of people who are dehydrated and anemic and we can support them through uh, a big crisis like the Ebola virus can inflict on a human being. Having said that, if we had a million or two million cases of Ebola virus in the United States, we'd probably overwhelm the system and then we would have deaths. <clears throat> But the coronavirus is not going to kill everybody it comes in contact with. It's not even going to make them sick. And if it does, a lot, you know, 99% of the people are going to have a cold and they'll get over it. Well, the people who are dying, as I said before, and I would venture to say this again, probably have some predisposing uh, immunocompromised system problem that we don't know about. We know that an American died in the city of Wuhan, where the virus epicenter is. And it turns out it's a female, and she had some predisposing medical problems. And what happens is you get the virus, and it, it causes a pneumonia-like illness, and then you can get a secondary bacterial pneumonia, similar to what happened in the great epidemic of 1818-1819, where Haemophilus influenza bacteria caused a secondary pneumonia and was named for the influenza virus that was going around then swine flu. That seems to be one of the bad strains. That can 
pops up every 15 or 20 years. <clears throat> now, I'm much more concerned about influenza. And if you want to protect yourself, as I've been preaching, get that influenza vaccine every year, unless you have some reason not to, you're allergic to it, or you've had an adverse reaction or whatever. Uh, but I think that that's much more sensible. Are we overreacting by canceling cruises and air flights to the Orient, to China, from China? I don't know. Uh, certainly, it pays to be cautious. Can we stop the spread of this? Probably not. You know, this is this is so easily spread. This is this is not like uh, strep throat or a venereal disease or something where you almost have to have some body to body contact. Uh, this this is something that can just float in the air or be on your hands for a, a small period of time. You touch a doorknob, someone else opens the door, and then they rub their eye or uh, put their fingers in their mouth, especially little kids and uh, the, the older and the demented. So it's going to be tough to stop it. The, the, the thing that we do need to do here, though, is study this virus because even if we don't end up needing a vaccine and <clears throat> treatment per se against this very virulent bug, uh, it's going to give our knowledge bank greater depth in how to uh, assess and uh, uh, defend ourselves against these, these often epidemic virulent out, outbreaks of, of viruses. And we, we know a lot about bacteria, and we've done a great job in, in treating bacterial infections and, and, uh, and curing people and the old man's disease, uh, the old man's, uh, we used to call it the merciful death, was the pneumonia that old people would get. And uh, now it's, it's, it's not that common for people to die of pneumonia. You know, a lot of us just die from uh, old age at the right time, uh, heart failure, whatever. And, uh, and, th and that's good. I mean, you know, we're living longer and we're grateful that we've been able to do that. So now we need to figure out how to get our arms around viruses as well. We have some uh, very uh, early treatments for viral infections. We know that we can now arrest the HIV virus and people can live uh, really almost a full life with this with this virus with the treatment that we have. We've got treatment for influenza, but you've got to get it early. We have things like Tamiflu, which will stop the reproduction of the influenza virus in our system. And that's a great thing. We like that. And we want to see more of that. And we also have immunizations against viruses, whether it's influenza, measles, chickenpox, a whole host of viruses now that we can immunize against. And we want to study this more. And one of the things that we that we have been uh, uh, trying to do is to share the virus, not not to infect people, but to share it with the researchers around the world, whether it's in the United States or France or China or Australia, the uh, national health services in those countries and the virologists, the people who study viruses and the infectious disease people and the epidemiologists epidemiologists are people who study epidemics. Uh, so we, we want to know and we want to learn. And, and this, is, this is a great opportunity. We, we can look at it as a great plague 
but we can also look at it as a great opportunity to expand our knowledge of how to deal with uh, viruses and uh, uh, epidemics such as this. Another problem that's going to arise from this, however, is that this could become endemic. Endemic means that it will be within the human community uh, for, for the foreseeable future uh, because we don't have a cure uh, and the, the prevention of a disease like this will require vaccination and not everybody will get the vaccine and the vaccine with viruses are not always 100% because viruses mutate so quickly. They reproduce uh, quickly, and they're, they're very primitive little things, and they can mutate easily. So if it becomes endemic, then we've got another problem. We've got another flu-like bug that can, that's, that's pretty aggressive that can cause people to die, especially older people and people who are immunocompromised, people who have underlying problems, people who have chronic lung disease. So there's a multiplicity of, of uh, problems and layers to this. Uh, not only is there the health issue, the immediate health issue of uh, keeping you and me safe, but there's also the long-term issue of will this become endemic in the population? Will it mutate and become less virulent and uh, not be a big threat or will it mutate and become more virulent and will we need a vaccination and will we need it sooner rather than later? Uh, how do we determine all of this? Well, it takes a, a big team effort. The epidemiologists who study how epidemics evolve and they can now trace the genetics of a virus back to the zero ground, the Wuhan marketplace where this all started, uh, probably transmitted from an animal to a human or humans. To the virologists who study viruses and uh, how to uh, attack them, how to control them, manipulate them, and the, the uh, people who make vaccines, the infectious disease doctors who study the secondary as well as the primary infections like the, the virus that's causing the coronavirus infection and the secondary uh, lung infections, bacterial infections that cause the pneumonias that kill people. Uh, there's just a whole host of people involved. It's going to take a team effort, and it's going to take a worldwide team effort. And we have offered, along with other countries, to send people from our uh, public health to their country to help them uh, not only study but uh, come up with treatment and, uh, and devise isolation plans and so on and so forth. And, you know, it's too bad that we're going to miss that cruise, but uh, I understand. I mean, this is, this is something that the world is worried about, and we need to respect that, and we need to work with the world. I don't think that if it hits in the United States, we're going to have the number of deaths that they had, have had in China so far, which are, what, close to 1,000 now, maybe 2,000, who knows. Uh, and I think there are, what, 40,000 cases now. So it's about 2% of the population that... Uh, that is going to succumb to this, at least from what we can see now. That's outside of the United States. And again, remember, as I have told you before, that within the United States, your chances of surviving something like this or Ebola or SARS are much better because we have a much more advanced, evolved healthcare system. We can support you in ways that previously uh, could not be done 
whether it's uh, fluids, uh, antibiotics, uh, transfusions, uh, isolation rooms in hospitals, oxygen therapy, respiratory treatments. We have a whole host in armamentarium of, of, of mechanisms and um, defenses and medications and uh, treatments that we can implement that perhaps the Chinese don't have. In addition, we don't know what the genetics of the people who are infected and symptomatic are in China. We don't know if they have some predisposing underlying problem. We don't know a whole lot about the the whole uh, epidemiology of this disease in China because we're not there studying it. Although we want to be, and not not to get in there and tell the Chinese how to do it, but rather to collaborate and learn from each other and figure out what's going on. So again, I'm going to tell you, I'm not real worried about the coronavirus. I don't think that you have to be uh, overly concerned. Uh, your cruises to the Orient are going to be canceled. Your flights to the Orient are going to be canceled. And that that's okay. You know, you'll, you'll survive. Uh, you'll see your family next year. Or you'll get to tour Japan uh, in, in future years. You can put the money to use right now. Put it in the stock market. Everybody's getting rich off of that anyway. Uh, or take a cruise to South America or uh, go down to South Africa, which everybody says is a wonderful place to visit. Uh, the Mediterranean. Uh, take a trip to a national park in the United States. We have beautiful, wonderful national parks, wonderful facilities. We've visited at least a dozen, and I've probably visited on my own another dozen, and uh, just love them. I love our national parks. Plenty to do. So I don't want you to get too upset or too worried, but I do want you to know that this is going to affect our lives directly and indirectly, whether it's travel uh, business, there's going to be uh, a big problem in China. I mean, they're they're hurting their economies already down because of of our president and our our policies of demanding uh, more parity and trading and uh, reducing them from a most most favored nation trading status down to a an equal trading partner, which they should be. I mean, they're they're coming along nicely, and they can do it. Uh, I think that the the coronavirus and the uh, the shutting down of plants, the isolation of of the country, uh, even companies like Tesla are affected. Uh, a lot of our American companies that have production in China and uh, offices in China have seen a drop in, in their productivity because of this, and it's going to affect all businesses internationally. And we we certainly don't want to see China slip into a bad recession. I mean, that that's not a good thing for the world. Uh, it will create a tremendous amount of unrest in the country. And if they have some kind of a, a, a revolution or a civil war, then the rest of the world is going to suffer because of that. And even if it comes out that they're a democracy at the end of it, it's going to take them a decade or two to recover from such a devastating uh, event in their history as it would any country. And so I think that uh, we need to do our best to assist the Chinese in, in this effort to conquer this disease. And I'm not going to uh, uh, talk about this too much, but I think I made my point, Ken. I, I, I think we need to be cautious but not be hysterical. And 
that is probably the bottom line, the message that I have for us. But I, I'm sorry, so, you're not going to get the cruise. That uh, sounds like a great That trip. The bottom line is my cruise is canceled, and I'm not happy. <laughs> I want my money back, <laughs> and I want it now. No, Australia JG. probably would have been a nice alternative, though. You know. Yeah, I know. I'm going to call J.G. Wentworth. I want my <laughs> money, and I want it now. <laughs> All right, Doc. So we're 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 off of the coronavirus for now, and just remember a few closing words on that: wash your hands if you're sick. Don't go to work and spread it to everybody. If you do have to go to work, put on a mask. Uh, if you're uh, elderly, uh, having some problems, if you're immunocompromised, if you have some other underlying disease process that predisposes you to catching a virus, whether it's influenza or corona, just wear a mask and make sure you use good hand hygiene. And uh, j- just be conscious of, of who you are, where you are, and what you're doing. And, uh, you know, don't put your fingers in your eyes and in your mouth and pick your nose after you've been out in public touching handrails and, and uh, doorknobs, et cetera. Just, just be cautious. Well, I got into a big to-do with one of the young doctors in the lunchroom this week. Oh, my God, I feel bad because I was a little hot. Uh, Trump came on and gave his victory speech at the White House after he was acquitted. And, of course, he was bad-mouthing Pelosi and Schiff and all of the other characters who uh, went after him and have been going after him and have said they were going to go after him and ran in the election in uh, 16 and 18 to to say that they wanted to get Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, you can't blame the guy for being upset. So I was cheering as I heard him say the things that he said, and one of them was that he was going to the Republicans were going to take back the House of Representatives. You go, guy. I'm all for that. Uh, And so this young doctor, he piped up and started talking about what a scumbag Trump was and and, uh, his business practices and, uh, you know, how often he had bankrupted and uh, utilized the courts to beat up on people and lawsuits and all this. And, you know, I was saying... You know, you don't know what you're talking about because it's not illegal to to have a civil suit that's in our Constitution, which, of course, he hasn't read. Uh, but he he's talking as if he knows all about uh, the the law. And he was saying that it's just immoral. And I was trying to tell him, I said, look, the law and morality are not necessarily matched up. The law is not there to to enforce you to be moral. The law is there to keep you and me from running over each other on the street, uh, from running into each other at a stop sign or at a, at a traffic light at an intersection. We have laws about traffic lights because there's so much traffic that if we don't have them, we're going to run each other over and get into accidents more frequently and kill people. And, uh, you know, he took great umbrage at that and he got upset and he said, well, there are laws against uh, frivolous suits are the slap laws, S-L-A-P-P. And these are these, uh, the, what do they call them? Let me see. Let me get this up here. They're frivolous lawsuits that people file in order to quiet down other people, keep them from a strategic lawsuit against public participation, slap lawsuits. It's a lawsuit that's intended to censor, intimidate, 
and silence critics by burdening them with the cost of a legal defense until they abandon their criticism or opposition. Such lawsuits have been made illegal in many jurisdictions on the grounds that they may impede freedom of speech. Well, I don't know, and I haven't been able to find anything, and that's not to say that Trump didn't do this, but I haven't seen anything that directly ties him to impeding freedom of speech. That is, using a lawsuit to stop somebody from saying that they believe in God or they don't believe in God or whatever, you know, the things that we think of as being freedom of speech. A lot of people think freedom of speech is being able to say whatever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want. And so if that's your idea of freedom of speech, I think you're not on the same page as me. I think of freedom of speech as the ability within the confines of the law to get a permit, to hold a parade, to air my views, as I'm doing here on radio, in the forum that is properly regulated. And I think that this is important when we talk about freedom of speech, that we put it into the context of the Constitution and of our laws. I mean, I can talk about what I want politically, uh, religiously, morally, on the radio, because I had bought the airtime, and because I adhere to the rules that the Federal Communication Commission has set up, and to the corporate rules of Salem Broadcasting, and uh, and so this is a legitimate way to voice my my speech, my freedom of speech, to voice my opinions. So, if you call somebody uh, in business, let's say that that I have done something at the hospital, but it, it wasn't my fault that something happened. I didn't do it, but it, it appears that I was involved in it. And you said, well, Handelman, you're a bad doctor and I'm going to post this on the web. And this is why, because you're, you're no good. And I think you should be sued and blah, 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 blah. And it's not true. Then I can, I mean, it's, it's not worth it, but I could sue for, libel or slander, depending on whether it's oral or written. If it's not true and it's uh, deleterious and it's meant to harm my income, let's remember that, that the civil side of the law has to do with one thing and one thing only. That's money. And that's in, what, the Sixth or Seventh Amendment, that if there's more than $20 this was back in 1789 when $20 was $2,000 or $20,000 today. If there's damages of more than $20, you can bring a lawsuit, a civil suit, to try and re- reclaim or, or recuperate your money that you've lost by civil torts, by an action by somebody else that is not a, a criminal act, but it has cost you money because of what they did to harm you or harm your business. And so there's a, a, a big difference. And, and I was trying to say to this young doctor, I said, look, you're confusing criminal law with civil law. And he said, well, my sister is a prosecuting attorney. I said, that's criminal law. That's not civil law. You know, that's like uh, me trying to uh, wax eloquent about brain surgery. I haven't done brain surgery, so I can't tell you all the ins and outs of brain surgery. I can tell you some of the basics of it as I do a lot of different topics, and I, even though I'm not uh, trained or board certified in a specialty per se like infectious disease, 
I have enough knowledge that I can talk about these topics. Well, it escalated up from there. And finally, he shut down and, and uh, you know, I tried to show him the Constitution. He didn't like that. And I felt kind of bad afterwards because I got a little, I mean, I wasn't cussing or threatening, but I was a little vitriolic. Uh, you know, I was a little hyper. And uh, I didn't mean to hurt his feelings. And he, I don't think, realized that by attacking Trump, he's attacking me. He's attacking my morals and values. And you may say, well, morals and values are fixed. They're given by God. And, you know, they're really not. There they're, they're may be some innate morals and values, like the desire for most of us to help somebody who is in distress. Uh, you know, we see that in toddlers. We know that they have some innate morals and values and that they will assist somebody whose hands are full if they can figure out how to open the door for them. The Most toddlers will get up and try and do that. And so that is, I, I think, some evidence of innate uh, moralistic behavior, uh, sympathy for our fellow human being, uh, sympathy for animals in distress. You know, these are emotional issues that seem to predate any uh, societal or behavioral or cultural uh, impact on us. And we see it in all societies. We see it also in, in chimpanzees and bonobo monkeys who are our closest relatives. They, they display similar uh, moralistic behavior and emotions. And so maybe there is uh, an innate sense of morality at a very basic and primitive level. And maybe this is God-given. Maybe there is a God. I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not, I'm not even going to debate that because it's not relevant. What's relevant is that we have a set of morals and values that we live by. And within a society, those are determined in part by the religion of the, of the society, the religious morals and values of the society, as well as the, the legal and situational values of a society. You know, if you live in a society where bananas are the main product, well, you're going to have more laws dealing with bananas. Uh, I mean, that just that just makes sense, uh, whether it's banana growing or uh, hybridization or banana theft or banana marketing. There are going to be more rules and regulations because of the complexity of a society that's built on buying and selling bananas and growing bananas. I mean, it's just... It's just common sense. So morals and values, they change from time to time. You know, the morals and values of the Tudors were quite different than our morals and values at that time when Queen Elizabeth I was ruling, uh, based roughly from 1550 to 1600. I think she died in 1603. So for a half a century, she dominated England and uh, the uh, English empire, which was growing at that time, and the morals and values of that era were quite different than they are of this era. In that era, women were subservient to men. Well, I mean, if you believe that women were ever subservient to men, uh, and now women are at least, uh, in theory, on equal footing. I think that probably they're over us, Ken. <laughs> least yeah, there's house. no subservience in my house, I can tell you no, that, Doc. No, there, that, that doesn't exist <laughs> I kind of doubted it ever did. You know? Yeah. 
you may have talked tough when you left the house in Tudor, England, but I think when uh, you got home, you knew who the boss was. Yeah, you're just fooling yourself no matter when you think that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so th- in that respect, I, I don't know that the morals and values have changed, but, you know, the clothing, uh, the what people wore, what they considered uh, right and wrong, uh, who who was punished, how they were punished, the types of, of, of punishment that was inflicted. You know, the death penalty was more common in that era than it, it is in our era. Uh, there's been an anti-death penalty movement in the United States and worldwide for, gosh, what, 100 years now. And so I, I think that we have to stop and look at that. Uh, by the way, you probably don't know who the Tudors were. Henry the Seventh, Henry the Eighth, Edward the Seventh. Mary, Bloody Mary, and then Elizabeth. And, of course, the two great tutors were Henry VIII and Elizabeth. Elizabeth was Anne, was Anne Boleyn's daughter. Remember Anne? She lost her head uh, when she got into it with the old man with Henry VIII. Henry wanted a son. He didn't think a woman could rule. Well, Elizabeth showed him, didn't she? Of course, he was dead by then, but, uh, you know, she ended up being one of the greatest monarchs in the English world and uh, did more for England and uh, established England as a power, her and her father, uh, than really just about any other monarch had done. Uh, and this was a time when, when people actually believed that the monarchs, or not everybody, but a lot of people believed that they had some God-given right to, to rule, that they had some moral authority from God, just like the Pope. And so our morals and values have changed. You know, it was moral in the 11th century to kill a Muslim if you were a Christian on a crusade because you were protecting the uh, the, the Holy uh, See, the Rome. You were protecting the, the Christian faith, the Catholic Church. You were protecting Europe from the Muslims. And now we don't think that way. We don't think it's okay to kill a Muslim. We think Muslims are equal. They're part of society and they deserve the same rights and benefits as a Christian or a Jew or a Hindu or a Buddhist or anybody else. As long as they obey the law, of course, you know, we all have to live by the same laws. So the morals and values change. And I think it's important that when you start to attack Trump or anybody who people have voted for that you have to stop and think about, am I kind of attacking Handelman too? Yeah, you are. I mean, I don't care if Trump lives or dies. You know, I'm glad he's there, but ultimately uh, when he's gone, my life is going to go on. I mean, not that I don't don't want to see him gone, of course. I want to see him in for a second term, but you understand what I'm saying. Ultimately, my life will continue whether he is there or not. But my sense of self, my sense of worth, and my sense of morality have been offended. And if you think that you're on, and I said this about some of the Islamic doctors I know, who think they're morally superior to me, if you think that because you're more liberal, more humane, more loving, more kind, that you don't believe in war and all this, that you are on some moral high ground that I am not at that level, you're going to get a fight. You're going to get a fight. Well, I'll be right back. I'm going to go grab a cup of Joe. I am Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Kenny, hang in there, bud. I'll be with you.
With SRN News, I am Michael Harrington in Washington. Irish politicians are facing messy talks over the establishment of a new government, as exit polls suggest that a parliamentary election held yesterday has ended in a dead heat between the country's three biggest parties. The vote counting is continuing. Analysts are forecasting some kind of a coalition will be inevitable, though. The exit polls released after voting Saturday indicate that the Prime Minister's centrist Finn Gael party, its rival Fianna Fáil, and the left-wing Sinn Féin party all received 22% of first preference votes. Dozens of artists and activists have gathered in India's capital today. They're demanding an end to violence against women in a country where such crimes is rising, despite tough laws enacted seven years ago. And Joe Biden is scrambling to salvage his presidential campaign as the New Hampshire primary looms on Tuesday, and a bad loss in Iowa is just behind him. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. The future is scary. Machines are taking more and more jobs. Self-checkout, cars are driving themselves. What happened to people? Luckily, there are machines that depend on good old-fashioned human hands. At National Aviation Academy, you can learn to work on and maintain aircraft in as little as 14 months. Call 800-659-2080 or visit wingmenwanted.com. The future is scary, but machines won't be prying this career away from you. Visit wingmenwanted.com. For more information about our statistics, visit naa.edu slash success. Work, school, grocery shopping, doctor's appointments, to the kids' soccer games, out for movie night, over to grandma and grandpa's house, and on last year's amazing road trip. Your vehicle takes you so many places. Lock it or lose it. If you suspect auto theft, contact the National Insurance Crime Bureau at 1-800-TEL-NICB or visit our website at nicb.org. A public service message from the National Insurance Crime Bureau. Take AM860, The Answer, with you wherever you go with our mobile app, TheAnswerTampa.com, Alexa, TuneIn, iHeart, and at Radio.com. Larry Elder believes the impeachment is just one piece of the puzzle. The House is threatening to call additional witnesses if the Senate doesn't. What did I tell you? This is never going to stop. The relentless negative coverage. The Larry Elder Show, weeknights at 6 on AM 860, The Answer. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. This afternoon, breezy with some clouds followed by sunshine, high 69. Tonight, clear and moonlit, low 54. Partly sunny and nice tomorrow, high 77. Patch of clouds tomorrow night, low 61. Monday, warm, high 82. Tuesday, partly sunny, high 80. That's your Accurate with the Forecast. I'm Brian May for AM 860, The Answer. Oh, take hold of my hand. 
here for you, baby. Hey, I'm back. I'm Dr. Bill, and caught me singing along there, didn't you? Nice singing so, voice. I didn't know you had such a nice singing voice. Well, how do you think I got on radio? I just sung my way right into Barbara's heart. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Barbara's our station manager, by the way. <clears throat> so, yesterday, um, I had uh, a wonderful birthday dinner with my wife and our neighbors, and uh, we had a lot of laughs and a good time. And they're very conservative, too, and, you know, we were talking about all of this and morals and values and the attacks on Trump. And, and I was just talking about that for the break and how an attack on Trump is an attack on me because, you know, I, I, I really and truly think that uh, he is the first person in my lifetime in the White House who very accurately reflects what I'm thinking and feeling. And uh, people say, well, you're, you're, you know, you worship the guy. No, no, no. He worships me. You know, I put him there. He didn't put me here. My mommy and daddy put me here. He he got there because of people like me. And I even used the radio. And, uh, you, you know, Joe, our ramrod at the station, he said, Doc, you carried several counties in Florida for Trump. Barbara says it was only Canellas, but, you know, she's very conservative. <laughs> <laughs> I think Joe's right. I think he really is. Well, I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, but I, I, what I'm saying is that, you know, it's not just, uh, and it wasn't that I came to Trump because I thought he was some great humanoid. Uh, I did my research. I looked at Bernie. I looked at Hillary. I did research. I went to their websites and to all, you know, to Mitt Romney and all the other people that were running. And, you know, and I investigated him. And I thought Trump was just doing it just because he didn't like the Bushes. You know, he wanted to get Jeb Bush out of the race, which he did pretty quickly, by the way. But I, I, was really impressed. I mean, the guy uh, has made it on his own, and you can say, well, you know, he stepped on people on the way up. Well, you know, that, that's business. I mean, I don't know how to tell you uh, th that you're going to become a billionaire without stepping on a few toes. Did you hear that? I did. Not sure what it was, oh, but God, I heard it. My, my phone, somebody's after oh. me. <laughs> oh, we got Todd in Tampa on the phone. We have Todd in Tampa. On the phone, if you'd like to talk to him, sure. Todd, what's up, bud? Come on. All right. Todd, you with us, buddy. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Just want to say God bless you. And I just want to, you know, again, you know, thank the American people. You know, there are 63 million of us that went out there. And I'm just, you know, Trump, you know, uh, it, it's a, it has to be a divine thing for a guy who never ran for politics to, to, be, to be able to withstand that kind of that kind of pressure and, and everything and the fall of accusation most of, most people would have crumbled so I just want to thank our Lord and Savior for always you know many of the travails of the righteous but the Lord delivers them out of them all so I just want to give Jesus all the praise and glory today as I'm on my way to church to thank him and again Trump standing up to the American people I mean you know you don't have to be a Phi Beta Kappa from Harvard to figure out that a Democrat hasn't lifted a finger to help your family your kids your wife or put food on the table. Well, God bless you, Dr. Phil, for standing up for Jesus and uh, and our president. God bless you. Talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you calling. That was really sweet. That was nice of him. It was. Maybe you should run for something, Doc. Have you considered that? I was thinking about running for the refrigerator with a six-pack <laughs> six of Heinekens down there. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Yeah, in a medical wait, field. Wait a back up, back up. That's, that's not for consumption on air. Let's, right, let's keep this legitimate here. Exactly. So uh, at any rate, I, I think that 
there was a doctor, and I'll, I'll say his name was Freddie. Uh, he was on the staff about 20 years ago. He died in a plane crash, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. He was a pilot. He had his own plane, and he flew all over North and South America, originally from South America. Urologist, made good money. Uh, not my kind of guy, but uh, that's okay. You know, he, he had his gang, his group that followed him and referred to him. And uh, he and I were talking uh, at the lunch table, several of us, and, you know, I was telling him my, my spiritual beliefs, which were certainly not his. He was Catholic, and, uh, you know, he said, how can you have morals and values if you don't believe in God? And I'm thinking, you arrogant SOB, how, how dare you say that to me? You know, that, that either there are morals and values that are innate, and there's some evidence to show that at least at a very primitive level, as I was saying earlier, there are, or there aren't, and in which case you learn your morals and values. And my morals and values are basically, basically Catholic, which was what I was raised with. And that doesn't mean that I believe in Catholicism or Jesus is God or that there is an anthropomorphic God, and I don't even think that's relevant. But what is relevant is that it's not his place to insult me because again, he's taken the moral high ground because he has religion. He has, and and I don't see anywhere. I mean, I've read the New Testament, a lot of it, and I never heard Jesus say anything like that. I don't, you know, he said, "Look, you just you accept uh, you accept the, the the word that I'm preaching, and you accept God, and you'll make it to heaven, whatever that means." But uh, you know, I never heard him condemn anybody for for not being at his level of high morals and values. I didn't, I mean, do you, Ken? I mean, I don't remember him saying, telling anybody, oh, you need to be celibate like me or you're not a good guy. No, or you I'm... need to be poor like me or you're not a good person. I mean, he took, it was like everybody's welcome. You know, come on in. Obey those commandments. Treat everybody as you would want to be treated yourself. And that, yeah, and the, you fine. know, yeah. yeah, you know, the law of karma, and you're going to reap what you sow. Yeah. So, so at any rate, Freddie was very popular. He was very popular with a lot of the staff because he worked with them and he accepted their patients and referred back to them. They did a lot of HMO work, a lot of the uh, managed care plans, and a lot of the doctors on staff at that time who were busy and involved were HMO doctors. And that, that's okay. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not an HMO fan, but that's the way it is. That's the lay of the land right now our federal government at work, by the way, thank you. And uh, so they have a plaque for him on, in the library or in the doctor's lounge, or whatever, and then everybody calls it his lounge, Freddie's lounge. And I'm thinking, you know what, this is not a nice guy. And I've heard that from a lot of people, including patients, that he was not a nice guy. And that's not to say that I'm going to badmouth the dead because that's not right. But what I'm saying is that if you think that you are morally superior to someone else, you better think twice because you're going to pick a fight with them. And let's face it, a lot of these religious wars are there over who's morally right. You know, it's the same as in the, in the, uh, in the Civil War in the United States, both the North and the South felt that God was on their side. And when the South started to lose, they started to say, well, maybe God isn't on our side. Maybe slavery is wrong, you know. And uh, 
so morals and values, they change. They change with generations. They change with time. You know, what the, what the Elizabethans in the 16th century felt was moral and right. And by the way, about 25% of the women were pregnant when they went to the, went to the altar to get married. So uh, uh, I'm not sure that there are any new problems <laughs> when it comes to the morality of sex and marriage. Uh, I would guess that that's probably still the case, Ken. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to tell you whether my first wife was pregnant or not when we went to the altar, but her tummy was a little big. <laughs> <laughs> and, right. you know, we went and we had a Catholic wedding, you know, we went and got married in the Catholic church and all that. Uh, so uh, I, I think that if you're going to take the moral high ground, which I, I have not seen uh, the president do. I mean, I, I don't see him saying morally I'm better than you. I, I, and, and I haven't said that to anybody. I don't think that I'm morally better than the young doctor who attacked me. I think I'm probably better read, uh, more experienced, and it's understandable that he's young. And when you're young, you're, you're going to be liberal. You're going to be, and if you're a doctor, most doctors are going to think that they're there to save people's lives, actually we're there for knowledge, which is the point that I was making earlier about the coronavirus, because when you have knowledge, then the, the corollary to that is progress, uh, technology, science, industry, medicine, uh, immunology. So ultimately, as my dean in medical school, Dean Keeney, said, I said, why are we here, Dean? And he said, Billy, we're here for, for comforting. And when we can, we heal. But above all, we're here for knowledge. And, and I think that that's the bottom line. Now, you can say, well, a doctor is a practitioner of that knowledge. Yes, that's true. We put that knowledge to use. But ultimately, we have to realize that the containment of that knowledge is more important than anything else. And that we put that knowledge to use because we have it in the container. And if we don't have it in the container, we can't use it. So that's why that's the most important thing. Yes, we save lives. And I've saved several this week, by the way. Thank you. You're welcome. And uh, hopefully I'll save a few more before the year is over and help a few people out. And I feel good about it. And I'm happy for that. And I'm, and I'm glad I, as a doctor, I say, gosh, it's a great feeling to know that you're helping people. There's that innate morality. That's something that, that we're kind of born with if it isn't beaten out of us by the time we're six. And so I say to myself, this is a good thing. But as I grow older, I realize that even more important than the application of the knowledge is the knowledge itself. And that is why we're here. That's the bottom line. We're here for two biological reasons. One is to reproduce and make more copies of ourselves. And the second is to make a better environment so that those little copies, our kids, our grandkids, our, our progeny, will have a better chance at surviving. We want our species to survive. And uh, I think that that is the biological purpose. I think the moral and spiritual purpose, at least for me, is to possess that knowledge, that knowledge of uh, not only morals and values, but also of medicine and science and, and uh, industry and knowledge and all the things that I consider important and that are important to you 
and that are important in your health being maintained by somebody like me. And, you know, you also have to consider that there's different levels of morality. There's different levels of laws that people live by. And it was the same in the Victorian, I mean, in the Elizabethan era. The wealthy had a different set of morals and values than the poor. And the uh, merchant class had a different set of morals and values than the per the person who was purchasing goods from them. It's a different a different level. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that you can kill if you're a royal and you can't kill if you're a peasant because there were consequences to murder even then. And we know, as Ken said, that the, the commandments are there and they're common sense. You know, you don't kill somebody because they're going to have somebody come kill you, one of their family members, or somebody's going to get you. But I do think that we have to realize that there are different levels of morality. For instance, a doctor who has sex with a patient is, uh, in the eyes of the state board, uh, a bad person. He's going to get his license pulled or her license pulled, and they should. But now, if you're the CEO of a big industry and you have a big client and you have an affair with them, uh, you may get your spouse upset or your partner or whatever, but that's not immoral. And that's not something you're going to lose your CEO license over. You may lose your position as chairman of the, of the board or the chief executive officer for your indiscretion, but you're not going to have your license taken away and told that you are a bad human being. So there's different levels of morality. And, you know, you look at Clinton and people say, well, why did Clinton get impeached? Because he had an affair with one of his interns. She was of age. Well, that's not why he got impeached. He got impeached because he broke the law. He committed a felony and a bad one for a lawyer. He lied under oath to a federal judge. And for lawyers, that's a bad, bad thing. That's a big deal. So uh, there, there are different levels of, of, of morals and values and, and legalities that come into play. And that doesn't mean that uh, lying, if you're not a lawyer, is okay. It just means that the consequences are quite different. And that we all tell little white lies all day long. You know, if we didn't, we wouldn't get through the day. Oh, you look good, honey. Yeah, I love that dress. Oh, you know, you're doing fine. And, uh, you know, we encourage our kids, even when we know that they're stumbling. Uh, we tell our spouses things that we know they want to hear because it makes them feel good. And it makes the marriage easier. It makes things work better. Uh, we agree to things that we may not really agree to. And, uh, you know, so we all tell little white lies, but there are some big areas in which lying, cheating, stealing are going to affect our relationships. All right, I'm, I'm out of here. Where are we going? It's only 958, dude. Bye. Bye.